all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is your program where you can access, by way of questions, any type of medical uh, interest that you might have. Maybe it's something new that you've come up with in your your interaction with your healthcare provider, or maybe it's a new symptom or medication question, anything that's related to the healthcare of yourself or somebody in your family or even a friend, you can reach us and get the answers to those questions. Or if we don't have all the answers, we always like to point people in the right direction. Or if you uh, can't call in right now and you'd like to email us, that email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a great Wednesday and certainly a little bit cooler temperatures now. I'm just hoping we get some rain for most of the state. I know a lot of places in the state are getting more rain recently. That's always nice. Seems like uh, my yard is the place that's getting none. So uh, hopefully that'll that'll change pretty soon. A lot of people have been uh, complaining about all the things that go along with that, though, just because of increased dust and pollen counts uh, with without the rain, there's been uh, a lot more of that and uh, floating around. A lot of people with allergies, uh, seasonal rhinitis, those kinds of things, can, medical conditions are having a little bit of a harder time. So uh, certainly some rain would be nice. Uh, expect this, though. When the rain comes, and I expect it will eventually come, uh, there may be a late bloom of all kinds of things. So if you're a patient like myself who sort of tries to pay attention to those shifts and when certain things are blooming uh, that you're allergic to, you might want to just, you know, keep that in mind. Maybe beef up your your allergy regimen, your nasal washes, topical steroids in the nose via nasal spray, those kinds of things. Or if you have the other, some of the other uh, what we call atopic diseases, including asthma, um, just be aware of that um, because it may be a little bit different than the patterns that we've had in the last couple of years um, when we do get that that rain because uh, plants will take, uh, they'll try to make the most of it. This is Southern Remedy, your program uh, to uh, on Wednesdays that we tend to not be as topically based. Sometimes we'll have a special topic that we talk about. But we like to give you, our listeners, the opportunity to call in with those questions. And that's really what I enjoy the most about our program is that you get to um, – 
uh, determine the content to a large extent. So it's really a, a great way for you to share something. A lot, most everybody always thinks that their question, nobody else would have the same kind of problem. But we get lots of feedback from our listening audience that uh, there's a lot of people out there that usually have the same type of questions, and they're common too. I hear the same kind of things in clinic. Well, one thing in the news that I did want to mention is uh, the recent FDA advisory panel about some of the -the over-the-counter decongestants, particularly those that contain the active ingredient phenylephrine. And phenylephrine is uh, one of those uh, ingredients that for years, really decades, has been on the market in a lot of over-the-counter medications and uh, for decongesting uh, the, the airways. And from time to time, there is more data on these. You know, I tell people all the time, some people think that once a medication is out there, that it's just sort of out there doing its business and nobody ever looks at it again. There are lots of ways that those uh, that over-the-counter medications and prescription medications are followed over the years. So one of those advisory panels was looking into this just to see if it's working appropriately. And uh, if you're one of my patients, uh, you've probably heard me say this when people ask me, what's the best decongestant that I can take for my allergy symptoms or for my, um, you know, the symptoms that go along with, say, a, a, a common cold or upper respiratory infection? And, you know, I'm, I would say, you know, there's not really any one that works better than another because they all don't work well. And if many of you with younger children will remember, oh, probably five, ten years ago, maybe now, the uh, the FDA recommended that we quit giving a lot of those to younger kids because the risk of side effects was a whole lot more than the risk of uh, the, of how well it's working, basically. So those are the two things that uh, that that they looked at is the efficacy, how well it works if it works, and then also the side effects. And basically what they found in a lot of the most recent data is that it didn't work any uh, better than a placebo, than a sugar pill, basically, when they studied it. And that honestly has been what I have found. I know a lot of people swear by one or the other, or they look for you know ways to get that phenylephrine. Phenylephrine is contraindicated in a lot of different things. If you have prostate problems, if you're an older male, it certainly can make those worse and put you into a heap of trouble with urinary bladder retention. Um, it can make you nervous. It can make your heart rate beat faster. It can actually, if you have any kind of heart disease or hypertension, it's not recommended that you take medications that have that. But the advisory panel is basically saying it does not have a documented um, effect that really is worthwhile when you balance that out um, with side effects. So usually uh, it's up to the FDA to, to, you know, the advisory panel sort of report to them and then the FDA would make a final decision. If it's not efficacious, if it doesn't work, then there would probably be a move to pull all of the medications with that ingredient on them off the shelves, similarly to what we did uh, for kids, because really it just wasn't working. This does not mean that the other medications that are in some of those combinations, like uh, Zyrtec, Claritin, which are antihistamines, those will still be available because they there is evidence that those work. It's just those combinations that usually there's a D on the on the 
latter side of that. And there's some other medications, too, that are used to sort of thin out mucus like dextromethorphan. But it's just that phenylephrine that is probably usually what happens is the FDA goes along with their advisory committees. Uh, so if they follow suit on this one, it will mean that those medications that have that in them will probably be pulled from the shelves and not available anymore. So just a heads up on that. I know a lot of people live and breathe by that, literally. But uh, when you look at the data, just not so. And we have some other medications out there that are much more effective. And I never have been a big fan of these. Uh, you know, they just uh, <clears throat> they just don't work as well as some of the other medications. Hey, Dr. This Jimmy, a, can I yeah, jump in for a second? Kevin. Yeah, absolutely. Just curious, how common was that um, uh, drug? And then w- drug makers will just have to pivot and, and either sell their other products or come up with new stuff? Yeah, so two good questions. So uh, if you look at the ingredients, and if you just go down to the decongestant aisle in the pharmacy, you can just sort of pick three different things. By the way, that's like one of those crazy nerdy doctor hobbies of mine is to go through the pharmacy every so often and just look at different things in there and just to see what's in it. But yeah, it is it is a lot. Like I'll give you a common one. Sudafed is one uh, that uh, that is that is common that has phenylephrine in it. But it's not just Sudafed. It's a lot of other medications that are uh, that have that as as a combination usually, not by itself. Uh, but yeah, so that they'll have to go in if the FDA rules in line with what the advisory kit, uh, committee said. There wouldn't be a reason to offer this as an over-the-counter medication since it doesn't work. So uh, those would be pulled uh, from the shelves, and it wouldn't be available. And then you know exactly like you said, you know, uh, drug companies would have to sort of pivot, uh, start making those, and honestly. There are a lot of choices out there that don't have phenylephrine in them. So, uh, and a lot of the effect that you get in some of these combinations is not from the phenylephrine, it's from whatever else it's combined with. So, um, again, just way too many side effects, doesn't work. Um, That's the whole reasoning behind that sort of pivot. And I know a lot of people are going to be like, uh, you know, that's my medication. That's the only thing that works for me. But according to the data, we have to follow the data rather than anecdotes. Uh, does it work? So, yeah, drug companies will have to figure that out like they have for other things. But um, we don't want anything out there that's not going to work like that. If you'd like to email us, if you can't quite get to the phone right now and maybe there's a, maybe a little bit longer question that you have, then you can always email us. That email address is remedy at uh, mpbonline.org. I should mention, too, a lot of people can't listen at the time of, that we're broadcasting live. Of course, we love the whole program sort of designed that way, but we do give you other listening options. So there's two others that I'll mention. One is to go to our website and our archive uh, there on mpbonline.org uh, to uh, just search for Southern Remedy, and you can uh, go in and listen to previous uh, programs. Maybe you didn't quite catch the latter part of it, or if you're a podcaster, whatever your favorite podcasting app is, just search for uh, Southern Remedy, and you can pull that up, download it at your leisure, and listen to all of our Southern Remedy programs on there. So it's a convenient way to do that. Just uh, uh, search for Southern Remedy, and you can listen at the best time that works for you. All right, I think we've got our first caller on the line. Let's go to Jan from Liberty. Good morning, Jan. Good morning. 
my question is about um, the COVID vaccines. Yeah. I, yeah, I just went a week and a half ago and got my flu shot and my COVID booster. And like three or four days after I got them, it's when on the news, they started that now they have a new COVID that is so much better. So, is yeah, it I, w- okay? I wouldn't. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. Sometimes it's almost like, <clears throat> you know, I've gone to the store a couple of times and bought different things. And uh, I thought I was buying the latest and greatest thing. And then, uh, you know, a day later, they're like, oh, we've got this new product that just came out. And uh, you're like, oh, man, I should have waited a day or two. Sometimes that does happen. I'll say this about the vaccine, though. Uh, I would not necessarily go back if you just had it a week and a half ago. I think you probably should wait a few months before you get the the newest one. It's sort of turning into similar ways that we do the flu vaccine. So based on what the COVID strain is and what the mutations are, they're basically making future vaccines, and this is this is no different, that are specific to that. So it's a lot like the flu. And, you know, flu vaccine isn't the same every year. It does change according to what we see in those patterns worldwide. Same kind of thing now with COVID. And, um, but if you just got it one and a half weeks ago, it's not like that's going to be ineffective. There's certainly uh, similarities in that vaccine and what the newer one is. The newer one's just a little bit more specific. But I don't think you need to just jump in line to get that. I think I would wait a couple of months. Okay. And now I have another, it's not really a question, it's a statement. Sure. And it was referring to all the allergies and people taking all this uh, allergy medication. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to uh, 1964, so I'm giving you my age. Okay. Uh, as soon as I graduated high school, I joined the United States Navy. Um, and one of the first things they gave us at boot camp up in Bainbridge, Maryland, was a bottle of normal saline. Mm-hmm. And the instruction was, at night before we went to bed, hang our head off the bed and drip a couple of drops and then kind of move your head around and then on the other nostril, drip a couple of drops. And it would keep your, uh, it, the, the saline kept your, nasal passages and sinus passages cleared out. And I've been doing this since 1964. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a, that's a great regimen. No, that's all I was going to say is I have no problem. It's normal saline. It's very cheap. And you can even make it from what I understand, your own. Um, yeah, I, but, you're, you're exactly right. And that's uh, actually that's, my regimen. Uh, that's what I try to do. I can't say that I'm totally compliant with it. You know, I'm a, I'm a patient just like the rest of us. But um, but yeah, that works, and it's been shown to be very effective. And you know, when we say normal saline, I know you know what it is, but you know, it's basically salt water. And you're right; you can make it. There are recipes to make that uh, yourself. You have to be careful. Make sure the water's cooled down. Or there are even little, i tell you what I do is I just spend a little extra money and I just buy it at, at the pharmacy. And there are a couple of different companies that sell the packets that you can put in an applicator bottle, fill it up with distilled water, 
uh, and then uh, squirt it up your nose. And uh, some people use a neti pot, but it works. And it's no medication in there. It's just salt water, and it helps to wash off all that stuff in there. You can do it multiple times a day. There's not really a limitation to that. Uh, Usually twice a day would be what I would say to patients, you know, if you need to do that. And most of the time, you can get by on sort of a maintenance of that. And then if you have a flare, you can certainly take, you know, other medication. But you're right. That is a old remedy. Sometimes the old remedies are really good. So that's one that's uh, minimal risk and, and very good. Like I said, I'm 77 years old, and this is what I do every night, uh, and I have, uh, and Ligustrum is my biggest enemy. Yeah, so, yeah. I think that's everyone's enemy. <laughs> uh, but that's just a very inexpensive, very safe way that I feel uh, to keep your nasal passages, and I even let it drain up and kind of moving my head around, letting it move back in up into my sinus passages. I don't know. So there yeah, it is. <laughs> to- totally safe to do that. Minimal risk to it, and uh, it certainly can make a big difference. You just have to do it. You just have to do it every day. A lot of people don't like that part of it, but I know some people are sort of they're like, I don't, I don't know that I could squirt something up my nose. It does take a little bit of getting used to at first, but um, it's actually really easy to do. Well, it's, I don't squirt it up my nose. When my yeah, head is hanging on the it. bed, one or two drops drip in. Right, okay? right. And as far as neti pots are concerned, I had a cousin that bought one and tried it, and she almost drowned herself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't need to. You, you could if you don't if you don't do it appropriately. It's a bit like waterboarding, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and the one I use is an applicator bottle that it just uh, you you it's got a, a rounded tip to it that you put uh, up against your nose and it sort of occludes the passageway, and you squirt, and it goes up the nose. This is the nasty part. It goes up the nose and then comes out the other side, and then you switch sides. So it's more of a high volume wash than what you're you're talking about. But even some smaller amounts could you know even even the sprays can work. Right. So. I just, that was uh, mostly my question about the COVID, but uh, I wanted to make that statement that that there's nothing like normal saline, and that's for babies, that's for anyone. Yeah, we we you're right. I mean, we do the same thing for babies. Uh, We talked about congestion earlier. Um, That works. That's actually what I tell my my moms of patients that are younger, like, you know, if they have nasal congestion and there's not, they're not truly having an infection, uh, you can just put one or two drops of nasal saline in the nose, use that bulb syringe to suck it out, and uh helps to keep yeah. everything sort of clean in there. So it's it's a, a time-tested uh, regimen that actually works pretty good. Yes, it is. So I thank you so much. Y'all have a blessed day. Thank you, Jan. We do appreciate it. You too. Another question I get a lot, too, uh, since we're on the topic um, with younger uh, individuals, and by younger I mean less than a year old, a lot of people say, my my, my, uh, baby has sinus problems, and uh, I think they have a sinus infection. And the sinuses in our head, basically those are air-filled or or, uh, water-filled passages, and we don't really know all the reasons why we have them. A lot of people have said, well, it's to help, uh, you know, it's designed to 
make sure your head would weigh a ton more if all if that was solid bone all the way around. Um, everybody's neck would look like some kind of WWE wrestler or something. I don't even know if they had the WWE anymore. But um, but that's you know that's that's one of the theories behind it. Uh, lots of other theories too. But whatever the reasons are. We don't have that as much when we're uh, born. So when you're born, you don't have big sinus passages, and so there's not really anything to get. We just don't find sinusitis in kids uh, that are that are younger like that. Uh, you have to be at least you know two, three years of age where you, before you start to see that. So there are other things going on. You certainly could have a uh, either allergies or you could have. Um, um, although those usually come a little bit older too, once you're getting you know used to what's what's floating around out there, and then um, the other thing is uh, it could be you know a viral infection, of course. But as far as an actual infection in the sinuses, we just don't see that in kids. I know a lot of people are overtreated for that with antibiotics, but that's usually not the thing to, to do. So the nasal saline can just help get all those secretions. Uh, moving, you know, they can be pretty thick, particularly in some individuals. Putting a little bit of nasal saline in there and then sucking that out is is the best thing to do for that. Another thing to do in older kids and adults, uh, sometimes people will advise, since we're talking about, you know, sort of the time-tested things, there have been a few studies on honey uh, at night in small amounts can be a, what we call a mucolytic. In other words, all that thick mucus production that you have it can uh, thin it out, and it's not just from directly uh, the, the direct effects from honey uh, on the tissues. It seems to be something that's stimulated when we eat honey uh, that can do that. So that's something else. And I know a lot of other people do all kinds of crazy stuff like eating peppers to get you know that, those secretions going, uh, um, hot peppers, um, that's certainly other things that people do to try to get that sort of cleared out. But normal saline does work really well. We had, uh, and the email address is remedy at uh, mpbonline.org. And speaking of emails, there was an email not too long ago that dealt with um, a uh, lung-related question. Uh, Let me pull this up. Um, So basically, it was somebody who was 70 years old, was a chronic smoker for uh, 50 years, they were checked annually for nodules, and uh, incidentally, if you're a chronic smoker, you should ask your doctor about screening for lung cancer. There's a new low-dose CT scan, so it's a lower dose of uh, of the radiation that is, is in there that has been very effective at picking up on lung cancer at uh, early, early in the, its diagnosis, which for uh, a lot of people has been very treatable. That's part of the problem with uh, lung cancer historically is by the time that you have symptoms um, of a chronic cough won't go away if you're coughing up blood those kinds of things by the time you have those types of symptoms it's really not much you can do and it's uh, a lot uh, lower success rate with treating it so one of the things that we do now is to screen those individuals who are cr- currently smoking or have a significant smoking history uh, to screen them and see if they can have a low-dose CT scan. And this individual did have that. 
and um, they there was a stable lung nodule of 1.7 centimeters, uh, and which they had a biopsy of that, um, and had a little bit of little bit of complications with the biopsy, but otherwise was doing well. And they had a question about some of the things that they found on the biopsy. Uh, and you know, biopsy reports and pathology reports they're written in in Doctor E's and sometimes in pathologies. Um, so it is a lot of different big words that sometimes can be sort of scary. So they had some questions about that. Anytime you see the word benign, that's a good thing. Uh, they did say benign uh, lung parenchyma, which that's just the, the tissue there in the lung. And they uh, was it was negative. You know, another thing that they can do with biopsies is not just look for cancer, but infection. So they tested it in this um, in this instance uh, for any type of fungal infections or bacterial infections, and those were negative. But they did see something called necrotizing granulomatous inflammation. So what does that mean? Well, a granuloma is sort of the body's way of walling off different things. So if you have far, and they're very common in the lungs, uh, here in the Ohio and Mississippi River valleys, there, uh, especially, there's a lot of, of fungus just because of our weather patterns and everything that's floating around. Uh, and histoplasmosis uh, um, is one of those. Uh, histo can uh, certainly uh, uh, cause granulomas, and it's again, it's just the body sort of walling those off. They, they don't have any kind of, you know, chronic significance for most people unless you're, you're being treated with something or you develop something where your immune system goes down. But there can be a whole host of things that really come up that way. And necrotizing means it breaks down on the interior of it. So it sort of loses its blood supply or it has sort of a, a bloody appearance on the biopsy specimen. Now, this can be from a number of things, uh, but it can be from autoimmune processes. Uh, it can be, like I said, from uh, different, uh, different other types of things. It probably just needs to be followed up a little bit more but, uh, but, and looked at in, in the scope of what all is going on with the patient. So uh, a necrotizing granuloma is sort of a walled-off nodule, and again, this was a 1.7 centimeter nodule that has something going on inside of it. And if it's negative for infection, then it may be something that is autoimmune. You're just going to have to, you know, trust your doctor to, to find that out and to ask all the questions about other autoimmune processes and maybe get some labs down that, uh, down that uh, path too. So that's, uh, but again, something if you're a smoker, uh, and have a significant smoking history, then you need to look into that. Just ask your physician about the low-dose CT for lung cancer screening. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls and questions about any type of healthcare issue that you are dealing with. We were taking some uh, emails uh, a little while ago. There's another one that has to do with osteoporosis screening, also a very effective screening technique. We just got through talking about lung cancer screening. And the question was really got, got a little technical. Again, that's one of those things that I think email is a little bit helpful in is about, you know, exactly what, what do you, uh, what, how do you interpret a lot of complex information? And, um, you know, tests that we get, uh, that physicians get on patients can be very useful. But one of the ways I think that we, we sometimes, 
uh, where things get confusing is in the explanation of those tests. And it is really important to take a little bit of time. I don't, you know, always succeed in this, but uh, to talk about the test and what's going to happen if the test comes back one way. I was talking with one of my patients uh, last week, and uh, they were asking about a particular uh, test that I was obtaining on them and said, well, what if it's normal? I mean, where do we go from there? And in this particular case, it didn't really change the therapy. It may change sort of what the dose of the therapy was, but not the whether or not to move forward with it. And that's an important thing to, to consider anytime you get a test, particularly if it's a screening test, is what's that next step if it comes back abnormal. So bone density testing is certainly something that we recommend in uh, all women 65 years of age and older should at least have one, and uh, or if less than 65 years of age, if they're at high risk. And that's usually a, uh, a first-degree relative that's had a, a fracture or had a history of osteoporosis that needed to be treated, um, or if they're a, a current smoker, if they uh, drink excess amounts of alcohol, there are certain medications that can thin your bones like prednisone or other steroids long-term. So there are lots of things that put you in that high-risk category, uh, including some chronic medical conditions as well. So um, if they meet that criteria, then bone density testing is, is the, the next step to get that. And basically, it's sort of like a fancy x-ray. It's not one that you can get from just a regular x-ray machine. It's a little bit, uh, a DEXA is, is sort of what we call it, a DXA, um, but that's dual x-ray, uh, um, uh, a dual x-ray machine that's a little bit bigger, more bulkier. You can't really take it around in different places. And basically what you're doing is you're measuring the bone density based on that x-ray at different sites. So there's plenty of different sites to look at. Two of the most common are the spine and the, uh, the hip, the, the femoral neck. The femur is the big bone that uh, connects your leg uh, to the hip socket. So they look at the neck of that, and that's just the, the location, that femoral, uh, femoral bone, and then several different places on the spine. And then they come up with uh, a couple of different scores. There's a T-score uh, that they look at uh, and a Z-score. And uh, there's different, I'm not going to get too much in the weeds of what would qualify, but basically the lower the number, and that, that goes negative. So if it's less than like a negative 2 or negative 2.5, there are different categories based on your overall risk. Uh, the more negative it is, that would indicate that you might need bone mineral, uh, bone remineralization. Okay, so all people, uh, and I didn't mention men, but certainly if you're in that higher risk group of having a relative, or if you, you know, smoke and those kinds of things, or if you've had a previous fracture that really didn't make sense, if it was a fragility fracture, we call them that. Those are all uh, indications that you should get tested. But basically, if it is a low enough negative number, then you need to consider certain things. Now, if it's, there's also different categories. So osteopenia is a thinning of the bone density, but it's not enough to call it osteoporosis. So we have normal 
and then we move to osteopenia, and then if it's less dense, uh, then that goes to osteoporosis. Osteoporosis, uh, you certainly need uh, you know adequate building blocks to build that back up, and two of the most important ones are calcium and vitamin D. So you need to make sure that those are, you're getting an adequate supply of those. But if it's osteoporosis, you really need something else. And there's a couple of different medication classes out there, lots of different ones, that actually stimulate the cells uh, that are responsible for building up bones to do that job. And uh, they also inhibit the cells that take away bone. Um, but they need those supplies, that sort of brick and mortar, if you want to think of it that way, of calcium and vitamin D. So once you uh, you uh, sort of commit to that, there's several different ways to do it. Some of those medications are taken by mouth. Some of them are IV infusions. The IV infusions tend to be much longer acting. You only have to get those once a year, and they're very stable in their effect on building up bone. And then you would want to monitor that with time. And uh, again, with any medication, there's a potential for side effects, so you'd have to discuss that with the patient. But um, it's an individual decision that your physician needs to make with you on trying to reduce your risk of that. Uh, there was also a question of why the numbers change so much from year to year sometimes, and then why do certain uh, areas of bone seem to be thicker than others? In other words, if they're looking at two different um, bones in your spine, why is one much denser than another one? And the answer to that is, you know, our bone gets thicker for a number of reasons. Uh, one is when we load it, when we load it up with different uh, uh, weight or tension on it, it gets thicker. For instance, if you did a bone, did, they've done studies on uh, athletes, uh, particularly tennis players, if you take them and you did a bone density of one arm versus the other. I know Kevin Farrell's listening right now because he is a tennis player. So whatever your dominant hand is that you hold that racket and hit the ball, uh, it's going to be a little bit thicker than the other non-dominant arm. And that's because you have more load-bearing on that arm. So load-bearing exercises um, are very important. Uh, I know people, you know, some people say, well, if I've had a fracture, I'm not going to do anything to cause another one, so maybe I need to get in the pool. Uh, that would be useful in some situations, but low weight exercises and things like walking uh, do help to help build that up. And different bones have different thicknesses based on that. And everybody's a little bit different too. So you may have certain muscles that you need to tone up. So physical therapy is a great option there uh, to sort of design a program that does that. It has other effects too, of course. If you have osteoporotic bones, you don't you know, want to lose your balance and fall down and have have a fragility fracture that way. So a lot to be said with that, but I basically, if you've had that bone density done and you, the numbers are confusing when you look at them, you're like, what is this T-score? What's the Z-score? I don't understand this. Just uh, Usually they'll provide a summary with it, and uh, based on that summary, they may say, well, at this point, you're just osteopenic. You probably just need to take calcium and vitamin D at this point, but not, uh, you know, not one of those other medications. Or if you're osteoporotic, then maybe you need to do something a little bit different. But uh, use your doctor as your interpreter on those kinds of things. 
This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart coming to you live right now. And uh, for those of you on podcasts, not live. That's right. You sort of have to pay attention to whatever uh, listening time that you're on. But did want to mention that again, that we do have this and all of our uh, Southern Remedy programs available on your favorite podcasting app. So if you missed part of the program, you can always go back and listen to it. Or if this just isn't the best time to do that and you want to do that at a different time while you're driving uh, to work or home or other times, you can always look for that on your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Southern Remedy and you can pull it right up and uh, download it and uh, listen to all of our Southern Remedy programs. So uh, we've got uh, Mike from Mobile, I think is next. Mike, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Dr. Jimmy, I've got a question about uh, CAD, coronary artery disease. Sure. I've, I'm 71. I've been on uh, statins for over 30 years. And make a long story short, I recently asked my cardiologist some questions like, could I stop taking baby aspirin? And he said, well, I don't know you well enough. And so he suggested <laughs> that I take a, a test called calcium score a CT of the heart, and uh, they come up with a score that estimates how much calcium, i.e., how much plaque is in your heart, and I scored 407. And when I look on on um, AI or on the Internet, 407, and it also said significant plaque buildup. It's, uh, you know, significant. And so... Um, the doctor didn't call me with the results, but I looked at it under the portal, with the portal, and I called his nurse some weeks later, and she said I fell through the cracks. And uh, he did switch me from Lovastatin to Crestor, which yeah. I think is a positive move. And we finally got a nuclear stress test done. And, you know, he saw me at the end of that test, and basically, you know, he came in and uh, thought I had a score of 100. And 115. I said, no, sir, I had 407 with significant plaque buildup. And he said, well, the I was, you know, we all hyped up about the nuclear stress test. And he basically just said, oh, well, it's fine. Come back in six months. Um, don't start smoking and eat less red meat. And I said, well, I've been a, ever since I heard about this, I've been a a vegetarian for the last seven weeks and all this other stuff, I'm taking it real serious. And, you know, let's, I thought we'd be doing something. But he, he's taken very laid back. And I do have uh, chest pain when I exert myself, and but I do walk one and a half miles a day. And I've lost nine pounds since I heard the news of the calcium score. So I'd like to hear your feedback. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so based on the information that you that you gave, um, you know, there's a couple of different things that we use to treat uh, coronary artery disease. And basically, what we're doing is we're trying to do some some primary prevention or secondary prevention. In other words, we're trying to prevent a heart attack, stroke, heart failure, those kinds of things. And there are certain ways to do that. Um, one of those is to address the the overall risk, which there's a there's an overall calcium score that you can uh, not I'm sorry not calcium score overall 
uh, coronary artery disease score that um, that we determine by a number of things, cholesterol being one of them. And if it's high enough, then we would recommend a statin to the patient. Now, you were on a statin that's, that was, you know, one of the first ones, actually, um, right. uh, the one that you mentioned. But, uh, right, yeah. But right. Um, the the reason to change, you know, some people would say, well, a statin's a statin, right? So what difference does it make? Well, the two that have been looked at the most and have the most effect of actually preventing a heart attack or stroke is a torvastatin, and that's Lipitor, or resuvastatin, which is Crestor. So that's probably the reason, based on the calcium score being so high uh, and that overall burden of plaque, that he wanted you on a different statin that had a little bit more evidence of actually doing something to stabilize that plaque or maybe even regress over time. And the dose also matters on that. So a moderate to high dose of that is important. So they may, you know, even if they have you on a lower dose, they may want to increase that. But it's more of a long term. Go ahead. Go ahead. Just at 10 milligrams right now of the Crestor. Yeah, yeah. So they may want to increase that over time, depending on a couple of other factors. So just keep that in mind. I mean, that would be one thing that I might, you know, ask them about is maximizing that dose of that uh, to at least 20, maybe even 40 of of the Crestor. So um, that's something to think about. Um, And then the other thing is modifying all your other risk factors. And it sounds like you've done or started to do that. I'll, you know, I'll say a plant-based diet. There have been some studies that uh, that had pretty good data on them as an intervention. In other words, getting away from a processed food, high-fat, high-meat diet to more of a plant-based diet has been very effective in treating the overall burden of plaque and also your risk of that sort of progressing. Um, now, plenty of other studies out there to show what kind of function your heart has and what the blood flow looks like uh, to your heart. So it sounds like they did at least one of those. And uh, if it was okay, then that gives you a fair amount of evidence that right now you don't have significant, you know, there's really not much else to do at this point to help prevent that heart attack. Again, the statins are the big, I mean, that's a big part of it because that can reduce it by about half. But then the other things that they ask you to do is also important and watching your things like your blood pressure and, uh, you know, making sure you don't have diabetes, those kinds of things. But that sounds fairly straightforward. Now, if you're still having, the only kicker is you might want to press a little bit if you're still having chest pain while you're walking. The, mm-hmm. the ultimate way of looking to see if you have any kind of blockage, which is possible even with a negative uh, cardiac uh, perfusion scan uh, that you could have a little bit of blockage would would be to have uh, in a smaller artery somewhere in your heart would be to have the cardiac catheterization. A little bit more risk. They're basically putting in a a catheter, you know, up into your uh, the arteries of your heart and squirting a little bit of dye there to see what the blood flow is. But that may be the only other thing that they they need to do if you continue to have it while you're exercising. Um, but beyond that, and and then if they're in there and if it's a big enough vessel, and uh, they could uh, you know do something about it while they're in there. But as far as taking any other medication, that's pretty much it. And unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of evidence to link the high calcium score to taking an aspirin. 
even if it's a mm-hmm. baby aspirin. So there's just not a whole lot of data to support that. The biggest thing, like we mentioned, would be the statin, though, and one of the more active ones like like what you're taking. But right. they, they may want to, and again, we're, we're talking about a reduction of a heart attack in the next 10 years, not like tomorrow or a week or something like that. It does take some time to really see those effects with the statins, uh, but that's just something to think about. Okay. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you, everybody, for calling. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the URSC of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.